everybody. I'm Bill Smith. And I'm Dan Davidson, and uh, we want to welcome you to this special supplemental edition of the Trek Geeks podcast. Bill, uh, we got some fun stuff today. What's happening? Well, we really do, Dan. As you know, today, Star Trek Beyond opens in theaters everywhere. And we have a special surprise for everyone. We've got some amazing audio from our friends at treknews.net. Um, one of their folks, Laura Siracool, was in the Q&A they had after the screenings. Um, and it's, it's some amazing audio. It's the direct questions and answers with the cast in one segment. And then the second segment is with the production team. So JJ and Simon and Justin. And both of them are moderated by Scott Mance from Access Hollywood. So we, uh, we can't thank them enough. And again, you know, um, listen at your own risk, as I'm sure you're about to warn everybody. Yeah, uh, there are spoilers in these interviews, so uh, if you do not want to know what's going to happen in Star Trek Beyond, we recommend you hold off on listening to the interviews until after you have seen what looks like is going to be a huge blockbuster hit starting tonight. Yeah! God, I can't wait! (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I think... Really, the only question is how many times this weekend we're going to see this movie. <laughs> yes. I've been very good boy this week. Um, I saw the tweet and the notes about the latest information on trailers and commercials having some spoiler stuff. So I've stayed away from it. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome. I want to see it every day. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably will. Um, but again, we... We truly cannot thank treknews.net enough. It was so kind of them to get us this audio, and we immediately thought that everyone in our audience would want to listen to it. Yes, we're looking forward to the feedback. Let us know what you think. And for those of you that will be uh, standing in lines this weekend in IMAX or in any other kind of 3D or just in the regular theater, have a great time. You are going to have your socks blown off. All right, well... Everybody, enjoy the press event audio from treknews.net. And also, Dan, before I forget, we want to extend our special thanks to musician Giancarlo C., who performed the guitar version of the Star Trek movie theme music. Please check out his YouTube channel. You can find the link in the show notes and on trekgeeks.com. But uh, what an amazing job he did playing the theme. So, uh, Giancarlo, thank you so much. So now, without further ado, spoilers, 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 coming in three, two, one. Who's 
Couldn't agree more, Scott. Carl took all the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Literally, I gave all those exact same answers. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> Carl and I had a great time working together. You know, um, in a movie franchise where we're used to spending so much time together, all of us really on the bridge of the Enterprise and in many of our adventures, it was actually really nice to have so many days where it was only Carl and me together, and I think we got to know each other and appreciate each other already more more than we already did, um, which was already a significant amount. And um, yeah, and I think from a character standpoint, I, I really echo the idea that these two characters historically in this franchise are uh, come, come at things from entirely different perspectives and points of view. 
And uh, I think there's nothing more fun for fans of the original show to see that dynamic unmitigated by Kirk, who usually manages to get between them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and I think in the same way, you know, Bones really saves Spock's life in this film. And I think, uh, I think there's a deep appreciation for that, obviously. Um, and um, and, and they, they end this film in a, in a much better place as a duo than I would say they begin it. Well, another thing that sort of is a throwback to the original show is the dynamic between McCoy and Kirk. In the beginning of the film, Chris, you have that scene at the bar where you're contemplating. Uh, what's it all mean? It, I mean, it was right out of a, a scene from the Corbelline Maneuver or Balance of Terror. So what was it like to just explore now that you've been out in space or the, the crew of the Enterprise? I mean, come on, you got the right <laughs> <laughs> All right, you could be in the next film. Not that the Enterprise has been out in space for 966 days, almost three years. Uh, did you get that reference? Nine, I did get reference. I got it. Yeah. Yes. Nine, that was September 1966. That was very good. Um, Oh, yes. Jeez. Jeez. Good. Wow. Did you really get that on your own? <laughs> did you deduce that on you your own? Seriously? Yes, 966. I got that. You, you literally got 966. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's Scott Madison talking to. I know. But it's like the limits of my. my <laughs> they just are always exceeded. Like, I just might think you can't get any nerdier. Well, no. <laughs> In, in the, in when, when Spock is, is, is uh, ailing, it was like that scene of Bread and Circuses. Where McCoy says, I know why you're not afraid of dying, you're more afraid of living. I mean, come on, I'm your guy here. You are. But back you to good. Kirk and McCoy. Let's talk about Chris, the, like, where, where is Kirk three years into this mission? And he's not super excited about being a Starship captain. Uh, yeah, I always have the most fun in these films, or either when we're laughing or. <laughs> talking, um, and then usually then shit blows up, and then we have to do the shit blowing up acting, which is uh, I, th- I think I spend the majority of the film saying, let's go! <laughs> Can we do it? I don't know. <laughs> and they're just breathing heavily. <laughs> uh, so that scene in particular was one of my, was one of my favorites, and um, um, it's, we, I talked a lot with Simon about how to nuance the uh, or what particularly was Kirk's um, trip and this whole thing. And uh, once we landed on the the idea of him growing out of or moving out of underneath his father's shadow, that made a lot of sense. And to do it with with Carl was great fun. And we had all that fun stuff with the whiskey and the vodka moment, which you know, just like these, it's just little itty bitty things that make us giggle and have a good time. That hopefully people appreciate. And uh, as you said, it's all these little nuance beats of the, the references and whatnot. So. That was improvised, by the way, when they were talking about I thought you'd be like a vodka guy. That all came out from those guys on the day, and that's the kind of super actors we get to work with as writers. It's like, sometimes you just go, go with it, and they do. They come up with the best lines. Well, I've got no. a little bit else to you on this, by the way. Hey, why don't you start here with that? Uh, yes, uh, as a fan of Beastie Boys, thank you that uh, yes. sabotage of all the aliens. I might be alone in this, but I want to ask Simon in your discussion with Justin and Doug, 
uh, your position, including including this classical music as quotes that uh, what was the decision behind it? <laughs> Say again, sorry. What was the decision, the decision behind including this uh, this song? Uh, it was a, it was a, we just love the idea of them foiling a technologically terrifying threat with something very analog and old VHF. You know, it was like radio. The the the, the initial idea was that they fired an old radio into the middle of the swarm, but yet it took many shapes as we wrote it. But we realized that was obviously no sound in space. We had to abide by physics at the time. So um, it was just the idea that, you know, we liked the idea that Jayla had discovered this old ship that had an archive of music. She, she discovered rap music and liked it. You know, she says she likes the beats and shouting. And, <laughs> and we like the fact that in the end they use it to kind of, you know, cause the swarm to have this big... And I like the fact that they all have the idea together about what, what it could do. And, you know, Sabotage was a song we used in 09, and it, it, it was part of Kirk's childhood. It all links... All these things link back to his past and his dad. The motorbike the song, it's all kind of him letting go of these, these things, you know, and moving on as a man as well, so it's important for the Kurt's character, but it's just a kick-ass song, you know what I mean? Yeah. If anything's going to blow up a swarm of spaceships, it's going to be the Beastie Boys, come on. <laughs> Scott Hoover in the back. The film has such a lovely tribute to Leonard Nimoy, and I'm curious, was there initial expectation earlier on in the process that he would be part of the film before his passing, and how did you figure out how you wanted to pay homage to him? When did Leonard die? That was during the writing process. Yeah, he died on February 27th. Um, I, I think, uh, you know... <clears throat> If Leonard was well enough to be a part of this film, I'm sure he would have been. And I know that there were early conversations with him about that possibility, which, uh, you know, true to his uh, incredible self, he knew himself well enough to know that that wouldn't be possible at a certain point. And, uh, and then I think it became important to all of us to figure a way to honor his legacy. And I thought Simon and Doug uh, did a beautiful job of incorporating it into the narrative of the film. Um, we all carried him with us through this production for sure, and it was definitely uh, a different kind of feeling to make this movie without him, for me in particular. Um, but I think he was very much a part of it in spirit and certainly in the film now, and, uh, and, and will be a part of anything we do moving forward for sure. We wanted to make it part of Spock's arc, because um, that's Spock's arc as well, not just as a <coughs> reference to. to to spot Prime or, 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 or you know what we did eventually of course it was just to dedicate the film to him but if, if, if what we wanted to have his passing be something which inspired our spot to move on as well and so it became an integral part of the story not just a kind of nod in, in Leonard's direction that felt more right to do that. Thank you. My question is for Mr. Simon. Um, I heard the director say that the main reason he wanted to tackle this project is because his childhood dream sort of was to blow up the Enterprise and then bring it back together. So I'm wondering, was that a collaborative effort or was that all his idea that he presented to you and then you guys developed it in the script? I hated the idea at first. We had, <laughs> I swear, we had like rows about it. Like, I was shouting down, I did down the phone, going, we can't do that, you can't destroy the Enterprise. Uh, my, my problem was that we, if, if you think it's something new, then we've seen it before. It happened in Search for Spock, it happened in Generations. But Justin was like very, very determined, and as we spoke about it, I realized what he was doing brilliantly was he was not only sort of taking out a main character, but he was removing the physical connective tissue between the crew to see what happens when you take away the thing that physically bonds them together. You know, 
if you take away that thing that, that, that necessitates their being a unit, do they dissipate or do they come back together? And that was the genius of that thing. You take it away very violently and, and dramatically, and then you wait and see if they all come back together to be this family, which is essentially what they are. And, um, and of course they do. And, and I realised, I backed down immediately and, and said, yeah, you're right, which I, well, I do occasionally do that. Not always. <laughs> uh, but in this instance, I realised it was a brilliant idea. And, um, but yeah, initially I was opposed to it. Yeah. Zoe, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your character and also her feelings for Spock in this movie? Um, she's tired. I think she's homesick. And I felt that that's the one thing I appreciated the most about what Simon and Doug did for, for this installment is that they, they, made us, they made us human, you know, and, and, and just homesick and sad. And, and, uh, and how being overly worked and being away from home and all the things that keep you grounded can put a strain not just on the intimate relationships that you may have, um, but also, you know, the professional ones. And um, I thought I would never see the day where I could, I, I would see, like, I would walk into the Enterprise and we're kind of, like, not rolling our eyes at each other, but we're not that, you know, excited to see each other. And um, so, <laughs> I, and, and I thought, okay, well, this, this is a great place to start because I, I can only imagine where we're going to end up. Like, like, and we literally end up in, in the opposite direction. We're, we're, we're dying to be close to each other. We're dying to save each other and to get back together. So I thought, okay, that's brilliant. And, uh, you know, she's, um, I guess that relationship with Spock and, and Ahura felt so normal and human to me that it's sort of the consequences that, that may occur when you decide to love your coworker in a, in a in, you know, in a lovey-dovey way. And, <laughs> and it just sometimes the professionalism can get in the way of, of, um, of the spirituality, and I feel like that's what happened between both of them. And I, I do have a feeling it was probably like her decision to sort of go, listen, you have a lot of stuff that's about to start brewing from your end, and I have to figure some stuff out, so it's probably just... That was your decision? <laughs> <laughs> you gentlemen. Think what you need to. Is that relationship doomed, or do you have hope? Um, I mean... I think it ends on a really hopeful note, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, let's go with hope. <laughs> if you were to walk in with some other Vulcan girl, or I, shit would go down, you know. <laughs> that Vulcaya amulet would come right off. Zoe, <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if any, anyone else could uh, contribute to this, but since it is 50 years now since Star Trek began, it seems your character especially has gone through. Uh, changes that sort of mirror women's changes, perhaps, in science fiction, in, in our culture and society. Can you talk a little bit about how you think she's evolved to what you're doing now, and anybody else from 65 to 2016 with this? I think there's, there's a beautiful... Um, I, I hate using the word sprouting, but it's true. Women are becoming very, very independent... Not just um, not just at, at in the workforce, but also in their personal lives. There's just something about like realizing that you, you should want to be <clears throat> a part of something. You don't necessarily have to be a part of something in order for you to be validated or 
or respected or appreciated or considered strong enough. So I feel that, that this breakup that Uhura and Spock have is, is amazing because she fell in love with her teacher. So he came as this figure that represented responsibility and safety and, you know, and maturity and wisdom. And now I think that she feels strong enough to, I mean, if I choose to see it that way, there is a parallel uh, um, universe situation here that's going on with the horror and women these days, is that uh, there's no longer this animosity or this resentment to sort of prove who you are. You just want to be alone. You just want to be left alone to sort of find out who you are because you're interested and you're curious. So I like this autonomy that's happening with women right now where there's, um, it's, and I like when, when, a, when a battle is fought just with a spoken word and, uh, and no, no, uh, nothing that feels tense or, you know, violent behavior or something, Physical. I guess. I start to babble. That's, I hope that happens. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of the questions that we were asked, um, maybe, uh, you know, for giggles on the on the tour in either Sydney or London, was uh, which timeline would you choose to be in the original series or, or ours if you had the choice? And I did say ours if forced to choose for this reason. Like, there, Roddenberry did set up a world, you know, uh, that was incredibly progressive, but it was tempered by the the social mores of the era. And I feel like we can go further in... in in 2016 than he was able to do at the time and to your point I feel like you know that he's that this our version is able to give more to the women and the people of color uh, in the cast than 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 Roddenberry was originally able to I think and not because he didn't want to right not because he didn't want to correct yeah yeah he absolutely wanted to yeah well let's talk about, let's go a little further with that John on, on how the character right right uh, <laughs> 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 on how Sue has evolved and and, uh, and really like when that idea came up on how to really get more background into Sue's character the idea came up, uh, I, I believe Simon pitched it, and then um, I was told of it uh, through uh, Justin early, pretty early on and when he had uh, set up at, at Paramount and, um, and we went in to have a chat and get reacquainted. Um, and I thought it was a beautiful idea. I had concerns about how it would be received uh, by George. Um, I had some other concerns, but it, it was really uh, the handling of it that was most important to me. And having seen the film, I think uh, its nonchalant posture toward it is uh, the best thing about it. And the fact that it's normalized. And, and, and it comes, it's kind of news now, but if you rewatch the movie in 10 years, you won't think anything of it. It'll just go right by you. And. Um, that's the best thing about it. it. There's no music cue. There's no close-up. It's just... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> He's gay! That was... <laughs> running around screaming in the old He's time. gay, everybody! He's with a man! <laughs> I, I like the one thing that I guess has, has taken a, a, a secondary uh, um, position is that it, it wasn't just that we revealed that he's gay. We revealed that he's a father. Yeah. 
So uh, none of the none of our characters have uh, families that we've ever talked about. So I, I, I actually feel quite puzzled that in 2016 um, we're we're having like a a, a bit of a fit over <laughs> who he who he fathered a baby with. The point is, I'm is happy he's a dad. You know, you had somebody on Yorktown. What the, the, the point? The of point is he's story. promiscuous. <laughs> somebody we care about in Yorktown so when Yorktown was under threat that, that yeah. made the threat tangible we knew that Sulu's family was there so it made it wasn't just a bunch of faceless federation people there was somebody there that we cared about too because we care about Sulu and, um, and that was really important the nature of that relationship wasn't, wasn't an issue and by the way the whole thing with George is, you know, people like to make things into a spat George and I email all the time and big long lovely discussions about it and, and we're on great terms it was never a kind of a we were never shouting each other or anything like that. It was just, a, and it's a great discussion to have. So, um, I'm I'm really happy with the way that it's been talked about and responded to, and, and I'm still a huge fan of, of GT for sure. Right here. Uh, this film is a bit bittersweet with the loss of Anton, and Chris and Chris and uh, John have spent quite a bit of screen time with him. Uh, what was it, this process working with him, and if anybody on, on the cast has heard from his family and their reaction? To this film, what what has their their reaction been to Star Trek Beyond? First of all, it's um, it's devastating to lose a family member, and um, you, you know we're, we're at a point where we should be celebrating not only this film but this beautiful man, this talented man, and for all of us, it is um, almost incomprehensible to be at the point where we have to talk about him in the past. Um, the pain of his loss is still very raw. Um, we, you know, we can spend time with Anton's family, and um, we uh, we know that they will be very, very proud of his contribution to the film. And this film will forever be probably the most special experience for all of us. For you know, it represents a golden period where. Our family was together, fully together for the last time, and, and it really was, I think, as Simon said, uh, the best summer of our adult lives. And um, we love him so much, we miss him terribly. You know, in the original series, in episodes like Who Mourns for Outer Eyes, Gangsters of Triskelion, Spectre of the Gun. <laughs> Kirk. This is a bit, right? right. This, this, this is actually a follow-up because Kirk was like a father figure to Chekhov. And in this movie, Chris, you got to spend a lot of time with Anton. So, like, what, in your opinion, just made him like a really special actor? Um, uh, he was he was just a good um, he was a good guy. He was just a good he was a good guy. He was very sweet. He was very. Um, um, beautifully, authentically, Anton. There was not <laughs> much of a censor on the boy, and um, I remember one of the first times I met him, like nine years ago, whatever. He was seventeen, and um, I invited him back to my trailer to, to play guitar because I knew he played guitar, and he played guitar really, really, really well. And he said, "I can't, man. I gotta go back to my trailer." And I was like, "Okay, why?" And he's, he was translating a. <laughs> It wasn't like he was, he was translating a, like an esoteric Russian novel into English. 
just because that's what he wanted to do. And eight, nine years later, I talked to him, and he was still translating it, and he was still reading this book on physics that this French philosopher had written, and he was still trying to get all of us to go to these... <laughs> like, he'd be in Vancouver, and he wanted to see some German neo-expressionist film that none of us... We would talk about it as if everyone has or should have seen it. Um, well, my husband was the only one I called him. He was like, hey, I'm going to go see this movie. He's like, oh, I fell asleep. <laughs> I ended up going that night. With Did you? you? Yeah. And, uh, I think. I think <laughs> he was a great guy. He was, he was just totally fearless. And I think I, what I, you, know, you try to grasp onto something that's a positive out of losing such a... Um, such a good guy and I think it's just be fearless creatively he was always working on stuff he had music projects and photography projects he was going to direct his first film this summer he was just spectacularly interested in life in a really a great way so who's got the next question right over there yeah 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 um this is for Simon. Um, what would uh, Tim from space like and dislike about this movie? <laughs> well, uh, this is a, for those of you who don't know, I, 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 I started out as a sitcom in the UK called Space, and it was about a nerdy guy. I don't know what I was talking about, and it wasn't me at all. Uh, but there's a line in Space where Tim says, As sure as eggs is eggs, as sure as day follows night, as sure as every odd numbered Star Trek movie is shit. <laughs> And I wrote that in 1998, I think. And then here we are in 2016, and I've written an odd number of stuff. I'm happy to say that Tim is wrong. Uh, I, 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 it's an incredible thing to look back on the circularity of that. You know, uh, having grown up a fan of Star Trek and, and science fiction, to be now participating in, it in, such, uh, in it in such an active way. Um, I tried to just make the kind of Star Trek movie Tim Bisley would like, you know, that's what Doug and I did, and when I say Tim Bisley, I'm talking about the people that have been with Star Trek for a long time, you know, because Star Trek must have been doing something right, because it's around for 50 years, and if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it, so we, we, we wanted to embody the original show, instill it with what made the original show great, but also frame it in a, a, in a big movie way, you know, which is uh, a luxury they never had back in the day. That's why the series turned into such a great thing. They, necessity was the mother of invention of that show. They, they had to make these wonderful little telly plays. They couldn't rely on special effects. Now we can do both. And it felt like, you know, I was always thinking, what would Tim Bisley think? Front row right here. Uh, the film felt like that throwback to the TV shows where you go on alien planets and fight. So what was it like for all of you being away from the con and in space and actually on foreign land fighting enemies? I like being on the ship. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's easier. We didn't understand. We were like in a quarry and oh, it was just dust everywhere. And <laughs> helicopters flying really low. <laughs> I just, I don't know. <laughs> and I like being in the Enterprise. It's cleaner. The spirit of exploration. <laughs> on the upside, it was... <laughs> on the upside, it was cool to be paired off. So even even though you were having a miserable time over that way. You heard how much you. I was complaining, but I was so happy that I was complaining with you. <laughs> 
Um, to get fractured off, you just, it, it, you know, typically you're, as characters relating on the bridge, everyone's relating to Kirk, you know, and, and um, so there's less talking to one another, and so just getting that opportunity brought out some different colors and vibes, so it was, it was good. Doug and I realized a couple of times, had, had you ever, had Chekhov ever spoken to Sulu at any point in the other two movies, like directly to? I don't realize a couple of the characters hadn't really interacted at all. There's a lot of panicky glances. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. They were... <laughs> Secrets. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Again. What can you got? Here? All right. Who's next? Uh, this. Yeah. Hey, uh, I have a, actually kind of a similar question to the space question, but for Simon, uh, you're kind of living the dream. You get to tell people in Star Trek what to do for all these years. I asked them nicely. <laughs> Fair enough. But I don't know. Like, I would have. I have like notebooks full of stuff that I would like to have done in my favorite shows and movies, and I was wondering, is there anything in Star Trek Beyond that you just always wanted to see in a Star Trek movie since you were young that you finally got to do, and that was really important to add in the movie? Um, I think the kind of, the, the business of writing a good story and, and making sure the plot worked, all that kind of superseded any kind of, you, you know, sort of uh, wish fulfillment. We had to start with that, really. I mean, the whole... The whole uh, splitting up the, the, the crew into different little interactive groups was nice. I loved the relationships in Star Trek, and it was nice to pursue those a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, specifically, particularly with Bones and, uh, and, and, Sp- and Spock. And uh, the, as Chris mentioned, the scene with uh, Kirk and Bones at the beginning, which is a kind of vague sort of parallel to the scene in Wrath of Khan when, on Kirk's birthday when Bones and Kirk had that moment together. But um, it was just... The whole thing, you know, getting getting the keys to that kingdom was was a real joy, and, and it was nice to sort of be able to, to write our signature underneath the hundreds and hundreds of signatures that have gone into writing the Star Trek universe over the years. It was nice to put our little stamp on that, and um, you know, fill it with little Easter eggs that only we know about. Right here. Since you can you hear me? Yeah. Since you guys were working with Justin this time around, uh, you're a family in a different location out in Los Angeles. You kind of have to uh, rally together a little differently. What was the dynamic working with Justin compared to JJ? I mean, Justin has a very different energy about him. I'd say he's a little more internalized, just as a person. He's a little quieter, but he's no less confident. Uh, he's incredibly gifted as a visual storyteller. And, uh, and I think he's really sensitive to character dynamics as well. He brings a balance of both of those um, extremes. And uh, he came in on an already moving train in a lot of ways, you know. I mean, he didn't have a lot of time to prep for this film. And uh, I think all of us were incredibly impressed by his sense of leadership and vision. And uh, I think also it was really great to have Simon... Uh, in a position of creative influence on this film because he was a, a tremendous conduit for us early on before we kind of forged our own relationships with Simon, uh, with with, uh, with Justin. Um, but all in all, I mean, he was a really welcome addition and, uh, you know, I would say very different from J.J., but also really exciting and really unique in his own ways and um and and reflective of this experience which was different and new for us to be away from the past and the the configuration of the last two films but uh 
we all had a, a great time working together and we really enjoyed him and seeing what he was able to create in, in the final product is uh, is really exciting for all of us back to the front row right here Hi, my question is about prop and costume. It's uh, costume is very tight, so you have to lunch sometime or any prop. If so, it's like a the gun that looks like an old cell phone for me. Tight around the world. I think the pants were looser, right, guys? We yeah, the pants were fantastic this time. <laughs> so much movement. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of space in the hips, which I appreciated. Um, yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, I don't know how to answer your question, but I, I will say... I'm going to make up my own question and answer that. So, uh, But there was a lot of... Um, you know, this is kind of, It's like the retro, super future version of Star Trek. So it's, it's looking way ahead into what Star Trek can become and and also having very specific nods to the past. And one of the very small things is like throughout the three iterations of the film so far, there have been a lot of discussions about colors of yellow, for instance, for Kirk's shirt and, and the cut of the, of, the, um, of the shirt. And this one is a very, you know, a, a specific nod to the, to the original series. It's not the kind of bright, fantastic yellow of the, of the first and the second. It's this kind of, you know... Lovely Kirkian mustard green. So, um, and um, I had a lot of lunch. <laughs> so, Sonny did an extraordinary job um, at our costume design. And one of the things I was most proud of was the fact that, uh, unlike the previous two films, that um, we got to do a JJ for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason, but the women. Uh, the women in, in the South Fleet uniforms in Star Trek Beyond all had ranks on the uniforms, which I think is a fantastic thing. And a fan pointed out to me, and I was shocked that uh, that wasn't the case. So one of the first things I did when I got to Vancouver was go and talk to Sonia about that, and she said, oh, yeah, don't you worry, women will have ranks. So I think she did a great job. Yeah. Bring this, like, what's the bring this? It's the 60s throwback to, uh, to the costumes, but then also making them... Slightly uh, new. I have massive envy for Chris Pine's uh, spiral suit. Yeah, but you get that that just wonderful shade of blue, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you look lovely. That ruddy complexion of yours. Right here, Scott. So I have a two-part question. Was this? <laughs> <laughs> How far do you see the franchise going now with these characters and is there any you know, thoughts on the spin-off uh, with the next generation and so forth? And then also just a fun question of what was the greatest takeaway for each of you from this film, like what was the best moment you had with each other or in pairs? Thank you. Well, I hope it goes on for another 50 years, you know, whether that's we'll keep going as long as we can until we're old and inappropriate. <laughs> Some of us already are. <laughs> But, you know, and who knows? Actually, the thing is about the new timeline is that Picard, Janeway, all those guys, they don't exist. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Man, would I be in trouble. Uh, yeah, I, hope it, I mean, I hope it goes on. There's a new CBS series starting. It's all about, you know, the, the, the galaxy, let alone the universe, is, is a boundless place. And there's, 
There's so many adventures to be had. And as long as we have this idea that, you know what, we might not just all kill ourselves and die in a big fire. We might actually become <laughs> slightly more enlightened, slightly more tolerant beings and go off into space. That is a lovely idea that I think secretly the vast majority of us want to achieve, you know. Um, Star Trek would live forever, yeah, longevity. Well, I just, you know, you just said something about, like, the next generation. Are you calling us old? <laughs> we just got here. <laughs> the show. I'm such a fan, I think it's all the way into the future. Huh? I'm thinking all the way into the future. No, no, here's cooler. <laughs> it's the <same> present. <laughs> Stop wishing your life away. Hi, Mikey from the LA Japanese Daily News. Uh, I just want to touch very briefly on what uh, you mentioned earlier. Beautiful comment, by the way, about 10 years, not noticing anything different. Uh, I spoke to George this morning on the way in, and he and I were talking about the world. <laughs> That's weird, because he says that. <laughs> he says that sometimes. You said that. But he and Brad and I were talking about how this, the, the original Star Trek, because you mentioned they didn't have a lot of special effects to rely on, they relied as much on social commentary and reflective of the change of the time uh, to sort of propel their, their story forward. In this day and age, I guess the question is, what can the message be now? I mean, you, you know, in the Oscar so white realm of things, and I look at this cast, and what can the what can the message for Star Trek be in 2016 to help propel it forward? Like you said, perhaps for another 50 years. Well, I mean, I think the message is the same as it was when it began. It's just that we have more room to explore and express it um, than they did at the time. Uh, you know, it's. Shocking to me how divisive our culture has become, and I feel like Star Trek maintains a position of inclusivity and um, unity that uh, is as resonant today as it was in, in the late 60s. Um, you know, there, this film in particular explores that idea, um, one, one side of that being about the unity and inclusivity and the other being about breaking that apart and um, and I think that's in a way really reflective of the society we live in today uh, it's troubling to me on such deep levels that we've gotten to this point of uh, unwillingness to see uh, varied points of view or uh, feelings or opinions or perspectives um, and, I, and I think that Star Trek remains in a, a landscape of uh, popular culture entertainment something that is um, a beacon of inclusivity and uh, and progressive thinking. Uh, I think it just takes on different forms now than it did 50 years ago. I think the film is actually even more opposite. It's become more so in the last, even since we shot it. Mm. You know, the message of this, the social commentary in this iteration of Star Trek is we're better together. That's what it's about. It's about collectivism. And in this era of Brexit and talking about building walls in certain places, you know, now more than ever we should be thinking about the value of collectivism, about cooperation and, you know, yeah. unity. That's our, that, is, that can be and is our strength, but the more fractured you become, the less secure we all feel, you know. So, it, yeah. you know, the, the, the villain in Star Trek is like, we could have called him Brexit, it's quite a science fiction name. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, you know, like, when you go into, you know, in the Star Trek uh, uh, setup, 
you're going into space and seeing so many different kinds of species, it does become uh, comically apparent when you look around the planet Earth that we live on that we do have so much more in common than we don't. You know, uh, so it, it, you know the, the the little things that seem to divide us here in our present time seem even more exaggerated, exaggeratedly small uh, after seeing you know an episode of Star Trek. So we've all got one head. Do you know what I mean? Let's live together. Next question. Last <laughs> question right here. Last question. Well. I just want to talk about Sophia for a second because I thought she was pretty kick-ass in this. And what, what moves did she show you, Simon, on uh, any kind of action? Sophia's incredible. She's because she's a dancer, and so she's physically so adept. So she was very up for, um, you know, the physicality of it. It's funny. I told this story the other day that, that when we just Doug and I just in the writing room, we wanted to create this this very independent female, very resourceful character on the Ultimate Surface. And we were trying to get a point. We didn't have a name for her, so we, we, we used to call her Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bunny. That was, her, that was her long name. And so we thought, okay, so Scotty lands there, and then suddenly Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bunny comes out, and she fights these guys. And it started to get tiring, always saying Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bunny. It's a long name. So then we started calling her J-Law, and then she became J-Law. So... Uh, <laughs> Jailer is basically named after Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bunny. Um, but yeah, we, there, there aren't enough girls in Star Trek. You know, Zoe has a lot on her shoulders, as you know. And uh, so we wanted to increase that. And also with Commodore Paris, you know, as a, as a figure of extreme authority. Uh, yeah, Sophia, we all love Sophia, don't we? She's a nutcase and a, and a golden addition to this, this group. So um, she, uh, she's awesome. Anything to ask? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Star Trek Beyond opens July 22nd, a week of Friday. Thank you so much, So sit tight, I will be back in a bit. is a, a standalone action film, but also a standalone film where you don't even need to see the first two movies in this reboot series to appreciate and, and go with and go beyond, so to speak. So let's talk about the sort of uh, challenges to walk that tightrope, to make a movie that the fans are going to love, of course, but a movie, a, a movie for everybody. Uh, well, I, I, to reiterate what we said before, it, it was... Um a, 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 a question of combining an existing mythology and, and, and embracing that mythology wholeheartedly and also making sure that nobody felt shut out, you know, so that if you were coming to Star Trek for the first time, you didn't feel like it was, um, 
you weren't in on a, 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 a some kind of you know joke or something. Uh, not a joke. It's very serious. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult tightrope to walk, really. And and if you fall either side of it, you you risk alienating a large portion of your audience. So. Um, you know, it, it was. Uh, we were always aware of the fact we were walking across a gigantic precipice. You know, Justin, I know that uh, you're like growing up. You're like me. Like all my friends were Star Wars people, and I was a Star Trek guy. Sorry, Judy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here, Scott. <laughs> but Jay, let's talk Justin. Like, let's talk about what was it that you really fell in love with the original show? You know, I, I, my, my family, um, we immigrated to the States when I was eight, and um, we, they had a little fish and chip shop, and they would close at nine, and we'd have dinner at ten, and, and at, at eleven, it came on channel thirteen, so my brothers and I, would try to talk our way and then just hang out with them. So from eight to eighteen, that was our level of engagement, that was our family time. You know, and I, and I remember moving to a new country, and like, I felt like it was just the five of us. But watching Star Trek, it, 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 it kind of like instilled in me that family is not just by blood. It's through shared experience, you know, and that's what I kind of, that's what Star Trek gave me. Um, but at the same time, every night, because I, my, our engagement was through reruns, so every night it was a new adventure. It was new obstacles, new challenges, and, and that sense of discovery and exploration was something that I, I really, um, it was a big part of growing up. Um, and yeah, my friends, they all had the little Star Wars figures, but we didn't have any of that, so we had Star Trek. And I, I you know, now I have a seven-year-old, he's a big Star Wars kid, you know? So I, I can't wait to, like, next week, I'm trying to convert him. <laughs> Justin, tell him about what Oki is in the film. Oh, you really, should I, Alex? Yeah, oh, man, okay, so uh, <laughs> Oakley, since he's like, you know, since I work all the time, like the only excuse I guess is to bring him on set and we try to shoot a shot with him. So, uh, so on fast movies, he's always like the little kid that's looking at cars and stuff. Um, so he gets one, on, uh, he was doing this one, and he really wanted to be an alien. I said, oh, okay, cool. And he was so adamant. He knew exactly what he wanted, and Joe Harlow came. We had meetings, and he's talking about, like, he wanted to be green, he wanted his ears, and this and that. And uh, so we shot it, and later on, I'm talking to him, and he, he finally said he wanted to be Yoda. So, <laughs> when, you see, <laughs> so when you see the film, it's a, it's a young Yoda. It's, uh, <laughs> well, JJ, you know, like, because you did first two Star Trek films, 2009 and Into Darkness, what was it like to sort of see this family sort of go off on its own and to evolve? with the surf uh, Honestly, it was a bittersweet thing. Uh, far more sweet than bitter, but um, the, the, the bitterness was only the, the jealousy that I felt that uh, they all got to be together. Uh, but when I was watching dailies and seeing what Justin was doing uh, with the, the new cast and with the story, the truth is I felt uh, a sort of odd fatherly pride that these people who I adore and who are like a family uh, get to live on in a way and, and then to see what Justin was doing, pushing the envelope in ways that, that I, I wouldn't and I couldn't, you know, doing things that have taught me, you know, uh, uh, lessons in, in action and, and uh, in, in character. The fact that Justin cared so long and, and so deeply about Trek, uh, you could just see in every scene him putting 
that passion into the scenes. And so I knew that we were, the, the story was in incredible hands, but uh, I couldn't help but envy all of you for you know, the time you spent together. Yeah, Doug and Simon. So, in the Omega Glory, <laughs> when Kirk is playing Captain Tracy, right? It's Omega Glory. Last, second season, second to the last episode. Right, it's getting ugly, everyone. So, so, it's getting ugly. Okay. When, when uh, Kirk is fighting Captain Tracy, the captain of the Exeter, who sort of went a little nutso. So you have sort of a, a throwback to that in this movie of Kirk fighting another Starship captain. How... How much fun was it to sort of throw back to some of those great moments that fans of the show love, but not go too far as to have people who have never even seen a Star Trek at all scratching their heads? Yeah, Captain to Captain. That was, yep. that was Justin's thing, always Captain to Captain. What, what is the, uh, the, the thrust of their, their beef, you know, and what, what does it mean that they're both kind of two sides of the same coin? Um, I'm going to let Doug carry on with this because I'm going to talk about co-writing this movie a lot but this man has to get the credit he deserves for <laughs> an extraordinary collaborator in most of the years but yeah, talk a bit about Captain Picard Well, I think we, we were trying to find a villain that felt uh, worthy of Kirk but also could be a vehicle for bringing up some of those great thematic things that Star Trek always does so to have sort of this darker mirror of Kirk represented in Indus' character seemed like a real natural fun place to go, and in the spirit of some of those characters we've seen before without specifically addressing uh, any particular episode. But there is a backstory of, of Idris that ties into the, the mythology of Star Trek in a really nice way. And it just, I don't know, it kind of fell out organically and seemed like a really good fit for what we were trying to accomplish. And what, what about you, Lindsay? What were some of the challenges to just sort of make it be like, okay, yeah, we want to make a movie that the fans are going to like. It is the 50th anniversary, but this is a summer movie. And we want Star Trek to be loved by everybody. Well, I think, you know, the best thing you can do as a producer is pick the right collaborators. And in this group, you know, I was so fortunate to have these people who each had their own pre-existing relationship with the franchise. I was a longtime fan. I went to um, Star Trek conventions as a kid and had a card in my wallet in high school that said, you know, member of Starfleet Academy, I will admit. And it was just, you know, really a privilege to work on this franchise. And I think, you know, Justin obviously had his own vision for what he wanted this movie to be, certainly has this incredible visual sense and long relationship with these characters. And all I had to do was help them keep putting one foot in front of the other, and they did a beautiful job. Wow, fantastic. Okay, who wants to start in the audience right here? Fred! Well, Star Trek has always been great for diversity with uh, some of the first leading Asian and African American uh, main cast members. Um, how important was it to finally, after 50 years, include start including LGBT in that? Uh, Sana got to speak a little bit about this in the first panel, but if the rest of the panel could speak about that, and have you had a chance yet to hear from any of the gay trekkers who've been waiting for 50 years to see this representation and how happy they may be? Um, I think it was hugely important, but I think one of the things that we, and how we approached it, was to not really make that big a deal of it. Because if you really think about it on a couple levels, one of them logically, in this future, in the Roddenberry universe, it would be something that wouldn't be a big deal. So to not address it as if something that was, had a spotlight on it felt like sort of true to the nature of, of what Star Trek is, but also to me seems like the natural progression of hopefully where we're headed ourselves 
in, in, in real life. So I think we, were, we, we wanted to do it uh, that way uh, and include it um, just as if what it is. It's just a normal thing that exists in the world. Any fans uh, express their gratitude? Yes, since the news came. Lindsay, you said there had, Yeah, there's been an amazing, a couple of them, really amazing posts about it, but one in particular I was really moved by it, that I believe Slash film posted about a man who had the courage to come out because of it, who was a long time um, Trek fan. He <coughs> sort of felt like, if Sue can do it, I can do it too. It just meant the world to, I think, all of us, that we could have a small part in that. Wow, great. Scott Hoover in the back. Um, I wonder if you can talk about how, Lindsay and JJ, how Simon, one of your cast members, who is the Trek authority and great creator of material in his own right, came in as screenwriter and got matched with, with Doug. Can you talk about how that conversation got started and how it got to official status? Well, I can, um, I'll just say that when we started working on this movie, uh, we, we had prior experience with Doug as a screenwriter, and of course, uh, Simon is my British brother, and so, um, formerly of the European Union, and, uh, and so uh, it, it, it made perfect sense, as sort of crazy as it seemed on one level, it, it was also so obvious to ask if Simon would be interested in, in working on the script, and uh, and Lindsay, who was there with Justin and, and Simon and, and Doug uh, the whole time, I think that for a, a moment it was a little, you know, like juggling cats where you're just trying to figure out how it's going to work because these are two writers. You put any two writers together who have not worked together and it's going to be tricky for a moment. But they very quickly found a rhythm. Um, Justin, uh, you were very clear about things that you wanted that were important to you. And what was, as it always is, when you have a movie where there is a schedule, and we've all been through this, you know, uh, before, you you simply have to figure out a way to squeeze every great idea out in the time you've got, n- never giving up, always assuming that that you're going to have the the better idea, but you this is the idea right now, and it's always the kind of leap of faith that it will work, but the one glue, I think, as, as someone who was frankly as much of an observer of what was happening, because I was busy working on, on Force Awakens at the time, uh, what I was watching uh, was a group of people, some of whom you know, had uh, Starfleet Academy cards in their wallets, other of whom were, were you know, died in the wolf fans since childhood, other of whom, you know, whom were growing up with their families and Star Trek meant everything to them. I saw this love of this world um, really being the thing that united them, and it was in a in a in a crazy way, uh, the you know, the story of Star Trek of of facing crazy odds and how the group everyone is critical to survive it. It was sort of a little bit of what the experience was of making the movie. Every single person uh, was absolutely critical to make this thing work, and they all pulled together to get this thing going in the right direction, and it was, uh, it was a wonderful thing to see, and because I'd been involved in a couple of movies prior, uh, it was actually, for me, sort of fun not to have to be in the fray the way they were day to day, because uh, I could say, guys, I'm really busy over here. <laughs> so I, I had an excuse. There. Justin, could you talk a little bit? There'll be theaters across the country showing this in that Barco Escape triple screen. Could you talk about making the decision of 
which scenes to go for, for that, that look and which not and so forth? Wow. Um, you know, the, the extension of the, the frames, it, it had to be... Um, it had to be created after. Um, it, it was something that that came a little late in the game, um, but I felt like it was appropriate because um, as we were designing the film, um, this is my first experience where, you know, uh, a lot of the shot design, though it was kind of talked about throughout the process, it's, it's fully CG. So I felt comfortable to make sure that, you know, when we had those scenes, that those immersive scenes, it tends to be kind of CG uh, heavy anyway, so um, it felt it felt like it was good. It was a good experience, kind of going in, just trying it for the first time. And um, but it, it felt like, you know, it, now knowing the technology, it would be awesome next time if we actually can incorporate it more into production. Actually, I have a, I have a question, real fast. So, you know, the, the movie's a little more than two hours, but I felt like it really flew by. It really flew by, which is which is a good thing that it just like you know had you engaged so much. Were there things that you shot that you really wanted to keep in the film that you just went, you know what, let's cut it? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, it was, uh, I, I thought I would, I, I, I think personally, I always think I'm pretty relentless, but, but working with JJ and Lindsay and everybody, I mean, it, the, the whole process, it was, it was really cool. It felt like it was, it was just alive all the time. Yeah. And we're just going and going. And so... Um, I, I, I mean, for me, there the a lot of the stuff we enjoyed talking was you know Idris the the um, the Kral Edison backstory and also the Marauders the, the swarm soldiers and stuff and we actually had sequences uh, uh, with much more of the backstory but we never got to shoot those you know but it was a it was a pretty tight schedule on this one basically everything we shot is pretty much on screen right right here in front. Uh, I, it's such a tragic thing watching it to see Anton up there and knowing he's not around anymore. It's, it's sort of unbelievable still. And, and I wonder if Justin and Simon could talk just a little bit about uh, maybe a favorite moment with him or what you remember most vividly about about him. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. It still doesn't feel real. I, I, I can't find a way to process it. To be honest, I. I, I uh, I, I can't. It kind of won't sink in, and I, my, I, my heart goes out to anybody who loses anybody uh, suddenly or prematurely. You know, it, it's, it's such a psychological blow. It's difficult to uh, to even contemplate. I, I, you know, one thing I've I've said in some of the introductions is that watching the film and seeing Anton up there so alive and and and, and forever preserved, and you know, as he will be in all of his films. That's something we should be happy about. That you know we're going to get to see him again. Uh, you know, Anton was just. I spent a lot of time with Anton in Vancouver last year. He used to call me up in, in the middle of the night sometimes, just to talk. He was an incredibly, incredibly intelligent man. He, he would like like uh, the guys were saying. He was translating this Russian. He was still working on it in Vancouver. He went home to do it a couple of times, making notes on it, translating this novel. He would talk about films so fluently and so maturely that he'd make us all look like dummies. You know, I would have to engage my university brain just to sit down and talk to him about movies because he was exhaustively, he was encyclopedic and he had this, this ridiculous laugh that he'd go, and we'd laugh at him for it, and then he would laugh more, and then we would laugh more. Um, 
he was a, a, an incredible soul. He was a beautiful, beautiful boy, and I, I loved him so much. We all did, you know. It's just, uh, it, it's not something that's easy to talk about. It's not something that we really want to be having to talk about, you know, other than we miss him. Uh, right here. Justin, though. Just honest with your dad. Yeah, I'll just say, you know, I... Yeah, I mean, I think it's still very wrong, still processing, and, you know, um, you know, I think it, it, we, I actually went back, you know, I think there was a group of us who were still finishing the film, we had, we had a few weeks to go, and uh, we went back and, and, and kind of, I went through all the footage again, and, uh, you know, the one thing that, that when I was going through it, it, it I know the interaction with Anton for me, it just is so clear that, you know, when he shows up every day, he's, he does it for the right reason. You know, I mean, we're making movies, you know, and sometimes you, you, do, you make movies and, and a lot of these petty, all this weird, stupid stuff happen. But he just shows up with a smile on his face and just has ideas. And I, I always just kind of look forward to, you know, every day he's on set, we huddle up and he'd throw like a hundred ideas, even though like maybe he's just in the background or something. And it was just, uh, it's just the way it should be, you know? And it, and it will, I know for a fact that it will live on with me and he'll live on with me. And I know with everybody that, that he's worked with or he's interacted with. And um, yeah. Right here. This one's for dad. As the co-writing can sometimes be a difficult task. Is there any points of contention between you and Simon that you had in the script that you actually won that gets kept in? <laughs> 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 my second, the second sort of statement. I wanted to thank you, J.J. Abrams, my son stepped up for Young Spock in the first film, and you helped pay for his college. So. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's incredible. But uh, <laughs> There's no good way to answer that question. Um, no, I don't think there was anything that we had fights over or tried to get in. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it is difficult. I've never co-written anything before, and uh, you know, it kind of helps when your partners write more than you. So that 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 was always good. So uh, no, I mean, I think it was just we. I mean, we found a really good. We had a really productive couple weeks where Simon and I were off at Simon's place uh, in London, where it was this kind of magical time, I think, where we just got to shut out all the pressure that was going on around us and this sort of you know, huge machine that was starting to get geared up, and we just were able to sit down. And I think those were the moments that I remember we were just laughing and really like enjoying the idea of laughing. Yeah, we were writing like 20-page Spock McCoy scenes because we were just like, we're writing a Star Trek movie. This is amazing. And so that's kind of, I think... We'd watch episodes in the evening. Yeah, we that was like our... That was, that was your idea. You're like, if we do good today, we can go watch it. <laughs> but we take our notepads down and be writing down the names of red shirts and little details that would feed into, you know, so that the, the universe had a continuity. Right, and then, and then I remember when we finally wrote the, uh, the, the final uh, voiceover... Uh, Space. We, we actually went back and we were like, I think we left a part out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was to boldly go. Yeah. <laughs> we basically just sure was the most. It was, you know, I, I must just say as well, Douglas, uh, we had such a great, it was such a great pairing. Uh, if only because we were always on the same page and 
it, uh, Doug has an incredible awareness of structure and, and an overview which is so vital when you're trying to track a story like this and you know, we had disagreements. I, as I said, I, I totally was like, no, you can't destroy the Enterprise at the beginning. But then, you know, when I realized the genius of taking away that thing that bonds them to see if they remain together, I realized that it wasn't a gimmick. It wasn't like, let's just do something spectacular. It was, let's do something really incredibly thoughtful and uh, that will drive the story, you know. So, yeah, we always had disagreements. And, and uh, some of them were a bit shouty occasionally, mainly from me. JJ told, <laughs> JJ told me down up at least three ledges. Uh, but here we are, and I'm so proud of it. And I'm, I, I couldn't hope for a better team than these guys. Right there. Hey guys, so we know there are 50 aliens for the 50 years, and I'm wondering, did everyone have an input? Uh, Simon, did you have like, a specific alien you were really excited to get in there? I, I remember when we were in Dubai and we walked out onto the concourse of Yorktown and just saw Joel's handiwork. You know, what Doug and I, what did we write? Like, there's lots of different people here. That was yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That was as bad as we could get. We did have that bit we wanted, like people handing out. Remember we had yeah, that? Yeah, like, you know, like you used to see like Harry Krishnas at airports when giving out leaflets about, you know, so we wanted it to be like that. Like they were, they were sort of Andorians. So sort of, come to our planet, and uh, we had this idea that the uh, your time was this incredible melting pot where lots of people were just trying to get people interested in each other's cultures, you know, which was lovely. But we never said, oh, one's got like a shell head and one's got. That was just Joel. And the design, the concept design was uh, staggering. I mean, what you don't see. Is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you talk about the red shirts. Like, remember an obsession? There was, was it Rizzo. Remember Rizzo died, and then in the yeah. day of the dove, Johnson, and then there was Mr. Wesley, Lieutenant Galway. They're all okay. dead. It's John, getting ugly, people. Right. <laughs> getting ugly again. Right. <laughs> the list goes on right here. Hey guys, uh, John from Roddenberry. Good job. <laughs> uh, I do have a question for you. Wondering if your own reflection on the last two movies or outside feedback on the last two movies influenced any of your creative decisions about Beyond? Well, certainly getting them out on the road. Yeah, I think that was probably an early decision to, to get them out on the five-year mission. And then, you know, I think once we kind of did that, it was, there wasn't a lot of concerns about, you know, uh, how, how the, the, the two previous movies or even a lot of the other things uh, were going to affect that because it felt like we were really in uncharted territory there. And that uh, was incredibly liberating, I think. Stid in 09, that was what we used to call it. So that happened in Stid. People were referring to Stid for a while, and it took me, I don't know, a few weeks to figure out that. Yeah, what <laughs> I just kept having seen In the very back row, purple shirt. Thank you. Uh, I was just wondering if there was any particular one scene that was uh, challenging to film or shoot. One. <laughs> One to two hundred and forty. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good sign that every day was a was a challenge, you know. And I, I, I and logistically, it was just the, the amount of time that we had. And I think we were all very ambitious. Um, I, I I actually really kind of enjoy that. So every time we show up in the morning, it was going to be a rough day. It was going to be a tough day, but in the, in the best possible way, you know. I think you want that, and and to have this group of people who. Who, who were there for the right reasons, you know, and trying to bring that to life. Um, I just felt like we were shooting a big indie movie. I really, that, that was the best feeling. The, the scene that was probably the most troublesome, well, not troublesome, was obviously the, the final showdown between Kirk and, and Kral. And we've all seen the film, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it, it, we didn't want it just to be, oh, Kirk kicks the bad guy's ass kind of thing. It needed to have something. And so 
and we knew it was coming up last. It was in Dubai. Aside from all the practical craziness of, of everyone hanging off ropes and having a cold, that black eye of Chris's at the end is real, by the way. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to do a, a on it. But we, we were, Doug and I were trying to figure out ways to make it more interesting, and we were trying to push for this idea that maybe Kral would have a change of heart. Lindsay was always saying, look, this, if you're going to do that, it has to be earned. And we were trying to find this way to make it work, but it, it didn't. So we ended up trying to sort of like have the audience infer that maybe he's coming to help. But, and thank you, Lindsay, for, for dog, so doggedly sort of saying, don't do something which is going to feel kind of unearned. And that's just an example of how collaborative this job was. You know, we, we, we always had, Lindsay was always there for, for all three of us, you know, as for Justin was for Doug and I, as Doug and I were for each other, just there to make sure we stayed on the right track. Got two more questions. You right here, and then you in the red sweatshirt. Uh, my question is for Justin. Justin, with taking over for JJ as the director of, of this film, and having your own creative voice put input into it, is it a bit more challenging when the previous director is one of the executive producers? Does it feel like he's hovering, or do you feel that like you're still allowed to have your own... I've, this been a, it, it's been a pleasure, you know. And JJ's been nothing but gracious and generous. I I I, I feel like um, I, I couldn't ask for a better experience, you know. I mean, the the one thing that that was a fact was that going from idea to production in six months that was the uh, that was the challenge. But but having a group of people that really are trying to be respectful and, and trying to build things the right right way. Um, I don't know. I just uh, I, I feel very fortunate, you know, um, and and to have the support. And as we we're building it, I mean, it was never easy. But but filmmaking is not supposed to be easy, you know. Um, and uh, you know, we were just in London. I, I remember just looking at Simon. We were the four of us were in this room in, in Soho with nothing. <laughs> this is end of January. We're like we're going to be shooting in June. You know, our whole crew waiting, and so. Um, to, to, to really have a, a group of people to, to try to do it right, you know, that, that really is, um, I, I feel like um, it's very rare, but I'll, at the same time, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm very thankful. And the last question. Uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, great job with this movie. Uh, Simon, thank you for coming to the screening last night, uh, right off of uh, the UK premiere, which was not the European premiere. <laughs> for uh, Simon and Doug, in creating a fantastic villain in I was very curious, was there any thought behind, is the reason he and his, uh, his crewmates look the way they do now, is it because of long-term exposure to that planet, uh, or is it because the technology draws like not just the life force of his victims, but also their DNA, so he's, he's sort of hybridizing himself with the DNA of all these other alien creatures who he's so, captured over the years. That's exactly what the idea was, that... that that he discovered this ability to prolong life and it meant a sort of vampirism of, you know, uh, 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 absorbing DNA which changed him physically and the idea was, and this was a hard idea to get across in the time that we had, was that the more humans he did it to, the more he started to get back to who he was before, you know. But yeah, Jayla mentions that the, the three characters that attack Scotty, they're all from various ships that Kral has brought down for the purpose of harvesting, you know, people that he can vamp off. So that was kind of... Yeah, yeah and was a, we thought it was kind of an interesting physical metaphor of the, 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 the character who uh, has a real problem with inclusion and uh, diversity you know, in his own way, for his own reasons. 
but he physically takes he physically becomes something else, uh, which is a counter to his own. Yeah, he's a living embodiment of diversity. You know, he has so much diversity inside his inside his blood, and uh, we thought that was really nicely ironic that he was almost like a walking hypocrisy. You know, but the more that he be- the more, and also the more human he becomes, the more he starts to remember his humanity, and that was all about that last moment. Was, yeah. You know, when he's fighting Kirk up there, he takes that look at Yorktown and it's like, you just want to hear his head going, are you doing the right thing here, you know? And, um, but yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a tough concept to, to kind of communicate. One of, one of the first ones that I remember Justin talking about, about a character who, who, who had that, embodied those ideas. I mean, that was way up, that was January yeah. 7th or something. <laughs> that was on the, on, on the longest day. <laughs> Actually, I got, I got the last question. So the end of the film. We all know how the movie ends. So where does the Star Trek feature film series go from here? Have you given thought about episode four? Uh, yes, and uh, there's something that uh, hopefully we're... Uh, Figured minutes away uh, from talking about, but uh, the answer is 100 percent yes, and uh, it's incredibly sad. I want to play that in. All right, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Lindsay, JK, Justin, John, Simon. Start Trek Beyond open next Friday, July 22nd.